Recently, the director of the National Institutes of Health announced that barriers between the sciences must be removed. He was addressing economists, philosophers, theologians, ethicists, and sociologists, asking them to join the medical community in improving predictive health. The goal is health care truly focused on health rather than disease alone. The shift in thinking about health as more than simply the absence of illness will be the topic of this Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233. Welcome. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta is my guest, Dr. Corey Keyes. Dr. Keyes is a professor of sociology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, where he holds a joint appointment in the Rollins School of Public Health and is an adjunct professor of psychology. Welcome, Dr. Keyes. Thank you for having me. You challenge the assumption that reducing the number of cases of mental illnesses will result in a mentally healthier population. Why wouldn't less mental illness indicate greater mental health? Ah, yes, that's a, that's a hard one to swallow at first, but it does make sense when you realize that there are studies out there now suggesting that symptoms of mental health belong to a separate continuum, so to speak, than symptoms of mental health. That in other words, when you do the measurements of symptoms of both mental health and illness in the population, they belong to two different continuums. What that means is the absence of mental illness does not translate into the presence of mental health necessarily. So this isn't just an interesting twist on how to perceive the mental health status of individuals. Those who are mentally healthy function better and have better health. Yes. No, it's not a new twist at all. In fact, it raises all sorts of new questions because this research suggests it's quite controversial, I should add, but it suggests that you can do all that you can to try to reduce cases of mental illness, and that is if try to treat everyone. At best, what you can do is to get rid of mental illness, and that is to bring people from minus 10 to possibly zero or slightly above zero. But health belongs to plus one to plus 10, so to speak. Mental health is. And so getting rid of mental illness or treating it or preventing it is simply one step in the process of moving an entire population towards mental health. So are you suggesting that the entire mental and physical health field reframe its approach to wellness, or is this more of an addition to the pre-established emphasis on disease detection and treatment? Well, I suppose it would be nice if we could reorient the current system, but I'm not so sure that's a good idea. I think we need the current system to continue to study the causes of illness, both physical and mental, and define the best treatments for things like Alzheimer's, uh, depression, or cardiovascular disease, because there will always be sickness and illness in the human population. However, we know in this country alone that even though we're living longer lives, chronic illnesses still plague us. And in fact, many of them are on the rise. Obesity is simply one. We could be doing a lot more with a separate paradigm or a separate institute of National Institute of Health that focused on the causes and nature of positive health. And I, in other words, I'm arguing for a complementary system that focuses on health at the same time that we focus on the causes and treatment of illness. We need to do both produce a healthy population. Right. And you've written um, that a positive approach to mental health is worth it for not only the individual, but for society. What evidence are you looking at when you say this? 
Well, first and foremost, things that uh, matter to the business community. Um, for instance, uh, we looked at whether in the past 30 days, typical month, how many days our adults cut back their work days by at least half. So they sh showed up for work, but they worked barely half day and they went home. Or we asked them how many days they entirely missed a full day of work. And then we asked them whether that was because there was a physical illness or a mental problem, a mental emotional problem. And I was only looking at the, the, the days they missed or cut back due to mental emotional problems. And it turns out the flourishing adults, those adults who have true mental health, cut back the fewest days and miss the fewest days of work. And anything less than flourishing increased missed days of work and cutbacks. In other words, this costs our economy, that, it, that being the absence of mental health, costs our economy lots of money in terms of lost productivity. That's just one example. We also looked at disability, limitations of activities of daily living, which is a measure that we often use in geriatric research to, to assess disability. And it turns out it's the same story. Flourishing adults at all ages have the lowest level of instrumental activities of daily living that are limited by their health. Anything less than flourishing increases it. In your writing, you question the value of living longer lives if it means longer suffering with mental and physical disabilities. Yes, I join some pretty elite company in saying that David Cutler, the noted health economist at Harvard, has written about this as well, that we're beginning to believe that it is it so great to, to live long if we don't live healthy? That, in fact, it might be better to live shorter lives if those lives were filled with greater days of health. So I believe unequivocally that the problem facing us today isn't that we don't have enough longevity. The problem is that we're not living as healthy as we could. So all we've done is increase the number of years that we can live with the possibility of chronic disease, which strikes me as falling short of an ideal. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Corey Keyes, professor of sociology at Emory University, researcher and widely published author on mental health. So, Dr. Keyes, uh, we were talking about whether living longer lives but suffering through the end of the lifespan is really the goal here, and obviously it's not. It's not. Um, ideally, and again, I'm saying ideally, we would like to do this for more people, and that is reduce the period of suffering. We have to face it that um, at some point, obviously, we're all going to die in that period. Ideally, we would go very quickly, shall we say, and calmly and confidently into our death. The problem, however, is we spend a lot of our healthcare dollars prolonging life at, at the very end where people suffer a lot. And what we have done is if we've not done enough prevention up to that point. So these people arrive at late life with a lot of physical and mental health problems. There are some populations that are thriving and living long lives. I'm not sure if they have, uh, if the end of their lives are, are better, if they have good endings or not, but they certainly are living well and for long periods of time. Can you talk about those populations? Yes, I would love to. They are very interesting. There are three, so to speak, hotspots in the world of healthy longevity. The longest-lived healthy people live on the island of Okinawa in Japan, and the other two hotspots are in Sardinia, another island, believe it or not, off, off the coast of Italy. And the third is in the United States and California, 
uh, Loma Linda, and where the Seventh-day Adventists reside. Now, these three populations present a unique story for all of us who are interested in not only predictive health, but promoting healthy aging. For instance, in the Okinawans, um, it turns out that not only does diet present an interesting puzzle there, which is to say that they have a unique diet, which is what we might call calorically dense, but restricted, which is to say that they eat food that results in a total a lower cal calorie intake than the typical American adult by far. Mm -hmm. But what they eat is very nutritionally dense. So the great example is miso soups. Not a lot of calories, but a lot of nutrients. But it's not just all diet. It's quite common to see the Okinawans out there raising their own food, which is a, a, a common attribute of all of these hot spots of longevity. But it's not just that they raise their own food. They spend a better part of their day tending the soil, being physically active. And the third attribute you see in, in, the, in the Okinawans is that they, they spend a lot of time in tight-knit social groups, and they have this interesting social network, which they call their social support group for finding purpose in life. Now, they have a Japanese term for this, but essentially what it is is that their task, culturally, they set themselves the task of continually finding the, in their purpose in life which appears to be a very important attribute of aging well. Do they share that purposeful examination with the other two cultures? They do, but it's, it's much more explicit in Okinawa than it is in Sardinia or Loma Linda. Here, and by that I mean the Okinawans have culturally cultivated this desire and these practices for reaffirming their purpose. And so they often talk about it, and they search for it actively. Now, what you'll find in Sardinia and Loma Linda are people who are very socially engaged. And by socially engaged, I mean not just talking to each other. They volunteer a lot. They, they get involved in causes for, within their community and for others, especially the, the Seventh-day Adventists. In Sardinia, these people live their lives. Their entire purpose is framed around their family. So they don't, may not actually talk about it as explicitly as the Okinawans, but their practices in life. In the Sardinia, it's around family. In Loma Linda, it's about family and community involvement. That's where I believe they're indirectly finding their purpose. It's that social element. And it seems that um, in our culture, it's more common for that to be an individual pursuit. Yes. Um, love it or hate it, individualism is both our blessing and our curse. It's a curse in the sense that in recent decades, we, we Americans have found it too easy, I believe, to relocate and migrate across the country, moving away from our families for our jobs. That makes it very hard to maintain connections with uh, those you love, particularly family. So I, I realize everyone has a story of why they may want to have time away from their family, but it seems to be a common denominator in populations that have healthy aging, that they have maintained strong ties to their family and family comes first. Right. So these cultures have strong family ties, social ties, perhaps different dietary habits. Anything else we can learn from them? Yes. I think what we can learn from them is whether our lifestyle and the trajectory of our, our culture is going in the right direction. And by that, I mean we'll put work often before our families. Now, I'm not suggesting people drop out of the economy and stop working, but when, what you see in Okinawa and Sardinia and Loma Linda are people who have found 
a lifestyle that balances work and family. For instance, in the Seventh-day Adventists, the Saturday is a Sabbath. And as they say, they unplug from society. And it's all about reconnecting with family and friends. And I think we can learn a lot from them and in the sense that we have to decide whether the course we're on currently moving towards work, work, work is necessarily what we want for healthy aging. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for today's medical professional. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Corey Keyes, professor of sociology at Emory University. Thank you for the discussion, Dr. Keyes. Thank you. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.